Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Die Hard with the delightful Rax King. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. But first, Die Hard is a 1988 American action film directed by John McTiernan with a screenplay by Jeb Stewart and Stephen D'Souza based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. It stars Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman and Reginald Vell Johnson, among many others. Die Hard follows New York City police detective John McClane, who is caught up in a terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper while visiting his estranged wife. Rax is an author, uh, is the author of Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. Rax is also the host of Low Culture Boil, a fabulous podcast that suggests if you like big titties, fried food, animal print, water parks, Guy Fieri, frosted lip gloss, belly chains, and hair metal, this is the podcast for you. Before we go further, I do want to thank everybody. When we were uh, talking about the Santa Claus last week with the great Siri doll, we were wondering, you know, if you are a parent and you are giving gifts from Santa and giving gifts from yourselves as parents, you know, what priority do you put uh, into making the flashier gifts come from you? Because you worked for that. You worked for all of it. And uh, what percentage goes to Santa? And we heard from so many of you. And it was so nice to hear from you. It was so nice. And you all agree the real parents give the great gifts. And for many of you, it sounds like Santa maybe just does the stockings or Santa does like one unwrapped gift sometimes under the tree. Uh, You shared so much about what goes into that decision. And I appreciate it. It was really nice having an insight into how and why you operate the way you do. And all of those answers inspired me to ask this question, which is what holiday traditions, whatever you celebrate in you know late November through to the new year, what holiday traditions do you have that are unique or outlying from other people's holiday traditions? Like, do you have that? Do you do something that you find that other people don't have or they, uh, they scratch their heads when you tell them about it? I'd love to know. It was so nice hearing about how you plan for Santa that I'd love to hear more. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing. How are you holding up out there? How's everything going in your life? How's everything going in your world? Let us know. We're still on Twitter and you can find us on Instagram at instagram.com slash you are good pod. Maybe we'll be other places at some point soon and we'll tell you about that, but that's where you can find us. Let us know how you're doing. And you can also contact us through our website, which is linked in the show notes. And that's how a lot of you have gotten in touch with us. And some of you have gotten in touch with us via Patreon, which is one way you can support the show. You can support us on patreon.com slash you are good, or you can subscribe to the show uh, at Apple Podcast Subscriptions. We make this show with almost entirely your support. We, I think like 95% of our budget comes exclusively from Patreon or Apple Podcast Subscriptions. Thank you so much for making that possible. We're artists, we are writers, we are journalists, we are musicians. This is how we pay our bills and you help make that happen. We appreciate it. 
And in exchange, you get bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode on While You Were Sleeping with the great Laura Lippman coming up soon. So that's what you get in exchange for your support for the show. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Oh, and I didn't tell you, we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes. They are inspired by the conversations we have in the episode. They are inspired by the movie itself. Sarah always has really great contributions to those. And I always have, I feel like, kind of left field (laughs) contributions to those. But we're told you enjoy them and we're going to keep on making them. All right, let's go uh, uh, wade through some glass and uh, save the day with the great John McClane. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Yippee-ki-yay, Alex Steed. Oh, you were sitting on that for a minute. Mm-hmm. You were like, I've got my signature, <laughs> my signature diehard phrase ready to go. Sarah, have you seen any good movies about two men just talking about their feelings lately? Yeah, I saw my dinner with Andre the other night. Fantastic. And what I didn't remember about that movie is that terrorists come and take control of Nakatomi Tower. <laughs> But I have also recently seen the sassy sister film to Working Girl, which is, of course, Die Hard. Of course. The way that we typically do this show is we have someone on and we say, what is one of your favorite movies? And then we talk about that favorite movie through the, the feelings lens. In this case, very once in a while, we treat ourselves like a guest and we cover a movie that we want to cover and then bring on someone we think who can speak competently to that, regardless of their feelings. <laughs> and you got into Die Hard this year, which I'm really excited to talk about. And we brought on Rax King to accompany us on this journey. Hello, Rax. Hey, I'm so honored that you think I can speak competently about Die Hard. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we didn't want a man. We wanted a woman who could speak competently to this movie. Because have you ever heard a man talk about Die Hard? Yeah. We don't want men generally. Have you ever heard a man talk about anything, honestly? <laughs> oh, it's unbearable. <laughs> it's terrible to listen to. It's difficult. So we have, we're so happy that you're here. Can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. I uh, am a writer. I'm a girl writer and also a woman podcaster, <laughs> basically just hitting all the bases. And uh, I have my own podcast about trash culture called Low Culture Boil. And I also wrote a book about trash culture called Tacky. So I feel like that's probably why you thought I would be a good fit for for diehard times. I, I'm excited that the 25 men who listen to this show already are feeling their blood boiling because, in their opinion, Die Hard is a classic. And I agree that it is as well, but maybe for different reasons. Oh, I love it. But I think that it's just <laughs> yeah. the perfect trashy 80s cop movie from a from a decade that was really not wanting for trashy cop movies so i I love it i love it for that reason it has a lot of hallmarks i'm really excited about this whole thing sarah yes before we get into the sprawling feelings that are packed into this movie would you mind taking us on a journey through what Die Hard is in text and maybe what Die Hard is in a bigger way. Yes, I'm going to give it a shot. I will say that I think the plot of Die Hard, as with many movies we talk about, a description of the plot doesn't quite convey the sort of the pleasures of watching Die Hard. 
And I also listened to the director's commentary with uh, director John McTiernan last night, who was like, yeah, I kind of wanted the terrorists to be hard to tell apart aside from like Carl and Theo. And I was like, good, because I can't. So good. So Die Hard (laughs) is a movie (laughs) about a New York cop named John McClane, who is flying from New York to Los Angeles to for the first time in five or six months, reunite with his wife, Holly, who he separated from, and their two little kids who are never jeopardized in this movie, which I think is a great move. Don't jeopardize kids to juice up your boring movie. Thank you. (laughs) So very importantly, he sits next to a traveling salesman who's like, the secret to surviving air travel, when you get where you stay and take off your (laughs) shoes and make fists with your toes and walk around on the carpet. The fuck is that guy talking about, by the way? (laughs) Have you ever tried that? I've never tried it. Like, maybe it works. I'm not gonna try it, I don't think, because it just, I I can't even picture it. It's like that thing where you're supposed to picture an apple in your head and most people apparently can't do it with detail. I can't picture toes. (laughs) That's interesting. I picture the car lowly worm drives. (laughs) What's the point of doing it after? The issue with flying anxiety is the before part. Well, it's because you're exhausted when you land and the theory is that it's supposed to like wake you up and give you energy, which um, apparently being attacked by terrorists is enough to give you energy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. John McClane should share his method with this guy after. (laughs) Get where you're staying and then get attacked by terrorists. So John is picked up by our limo driver, Argyle, who is my favorite character because he does what I would do in an action movie and keeps out of it. (laughs) (laughs) And they drive into uh, Nakatomi Tower, the building in Sanctuary City, where Holly works, and get through some exposition. We learned that they're estranged because Holly got a job that turned into a great career, and John didn't want to leave New York because he has a six-month backlog of scumbags that he has to put behind bars, which I don't think is a great excuse, but we'll get more into that stuff later. Can I say briefly that for an action movie of this time that is a fun and trashy cop movie, I was very into how they handled exposition. Oh, yeah. It's very elegant. Yes. We make fun of Marvel movies all the time for its approach to exposition, which is just like people say paragraphs to each other (laughs) and then repeat them over and over and over. And in this, it's like, a driver who asks a lot of questions. That's perfect. Like, that's a real thing that would happen. <laughs> they picked the perfect guy to play that driver, too. I super sure believed did. that man would ask a bunch of inappropriately intimate questions. <laughs> that guy's driving Uber right now and getting some dodgy reviews for how many questions he asks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we got through our exposition drive. Argyle is like, if you score with your old lady... I will be waiting to pick you up, and if not, I'll take you to a hotel. So we've created a device where Argyle has to be waiting in a nearby garage for hours and hours, having the time of his life, calling every girl he knows. (laughs) So John goes into the tower. He goes to the Nakatomi Corporation Christmas party. This is one of many 80s movies where there's just like this unquestioned thread of anti-Japanese sentiment running throughout and where it's like fine to be racist because you're arguing that Japanese corporate dominance is like revenge for losing World War II. It's very weird. And there's a lot of it in Fatal Attraction, shockingly, as well. And so he meets up with Holly, immediately picks a fight because she's going by her maiden name, Gennaro. 
and then takes off his shoes and makes fists with his toes. And wouldn't you know it, that's when the terrorists come, led, led by Hans Gruber, <laughs> Alan Rickman, a famous German actor. <laughs> the terrorists are Hans Gruber, Theo, the hacker, Carl, a.k.a. Shelley Long's ex-husband from The Money Pit, Carl's brother, who looks like Jeffrey Dahmer, Uli, the guy who steals a candy bar, Fritz, who looks like Carl but has darker hair, Heinrich, who looks like Carl but has curly hair, Eddie, who looks like Huey Lewis, and James, Marco, Christoph, Alexander, and Franco, who I have literally no memory of at all. I had to look all these names up. I'm sorry, that's so many more guys than I thought. I thought there were six. It's so many guys. That was like 10 that you just said. <laughs> yeah, there's 12 of them, like the apostles. And I think that this movie is like Newsies and that it rewards many, many rewatches. And I think you would have to see this like 20 <laughs> times before you'd be like, oh, there's Franco. It's like when you're a Newsies <laughs> fan where you're like, there's Jake, there's Bumlets, there's Dutchy. It's the same thing. It's like Newsies, but with guns. <laughs> so the terrorists seize control. They're like, we're terrorists. We have political goals. Um, and we also definitely want your $640 million in bearer bonds which, as far as I can tell, is a commodity that exists largely to create action movie MacGuffins. We also had bearer bonds in heat. <laughs> Hans tries to get the vault code from Nakatomi. He refuses. Hans executes, or Takagi, excuse me, Mr. Takagi. Mr. Nakatomi is not in the building. We get the line, Mr. Takagi, I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. <laughs> and there isn't. And actually, this is our only casualty Aside from Holly's cokehead co-worker, Ellis, who is my other favorite character. In his At The Movies review of this, Roger Ebert said that he liked Die Hard, but he was really taken out of it by the LAPD and the FBI being so stupid and unhelpful. And that was why he could not give it a thumbs up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll just talk about that later. <laughs> so they seize the tower. They figure out that despite the fact that they've taken all these hostages from the Christmas party, someone, someone who is making fists with his toes <laughs> has slipped away. And so they send Tony, Carl's brother, who looks like Jeffrey Dahmer, after John. John kills him and then gets his machine gun and radio uh, and then radios the emergency frequency, which is being manned by two women in ponytails who are implicitly making the case that women shouldn't be in positions of power, possibly. Because <laughs> they're like, this is reserved for emergency calls. You're, you are going to be fined by the FCC. But they do summon a cop who is Al, AKA the dad from Family Matters, which is great. What a great like two roles to be defined by. So. Al has been buying like eight or nine Twinkies when he gets the call. He goes by Nakatomi Tower. He checks out the lobby where the one who looks like Huey Lewis is uh, manning the desk and is like, everything looks fine. I really don't feel like going up to the top floor. And then John cleverly kills another terrorist and throws the body onto Al's car, who's like, OK, I'm going to call for <laughs> backup now. He calls for backup and the LAPD mm -hmm. is led by, I believe, assistant chief. John Vernon from The Breakfast Club, or Assistant Principal Vernon. Assistant Principal, Assistant <laughs> Police Chief Vernon from The Breakfast Club. This movie has incredible casting for 80s dick wheels. We get him, <laughs> and we also have, as a troublemaking newscaster, 
the man with no dick from Ghostbusters, or as I know him, <laughs> Professor Hathaway from Real Genius. So John is continuing to duke it out with the terrorists. The backup are arriving. He throws a bunch of C4 into an elevator and causes a giant explosion, which leads him to get to leap away from it going, oh, shit, mm. which we love. Holly's coworker Alice attempts to negotiate with Hans Gruber with Alex, your favorite line. I texted it to you and forgot it immediately, but he calls him Bubby, which I really appreciate. Me too. Least Jewish man in history. The king of the wasps. Hans, Bubby, <laughs> I'm your white knight. So Hans kills him too. Hans stumbles out <laughs> while checking the explosives and runs into John McClane, thinks fast and does... The kind of American accent you see when there's an American character on Miss Marple, which is amazing. He's like, oh, God, my name is Bill Clay and I work here. So they have that face off. Uh, and then he works out that John doesn't have any shoes on. So he gets his henchman to shoot out the glass. And then we actually don't see John like having to run over all the glass. We see him dragging his incredibly bloody feet um, into a room where he can take a little breather and pick the glass out of his feet <laughs> and have an emotional chat with Al downstairs, who continues to be the only useful authority figure in the entire movie and who none of the other cops are listening to the entire time, obviously. And so they talk about how he said, I love you to Holly a million times, but he never said I'm sorry. And it's very much like the scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where Eddie and Roger in the movie theater, having a little heart-to-heart -heart before the action picks up again. This also follows the trope that we talk about pretty often now with Manhunter, where it's like, this cop's primary skill is he just has emotions that are not blowing up. Yes. Like the other cops have emotions, which are like, Bleh! but like his primary skill is like mm -hmm. he has one other set of emotions, which is. Yeah. The other cops emotions are rage and embarrassment <laughs> and suspicion. <laughs> and then he adds in insecurity, which is nice little triangle of feelings to have. The male feelings, the man feelings, <laughs> feelings for men. He's insecure because he shot a child. Child. I had forgotten yes. that that was a thing. We'll talk about what his arc ultimately is, but I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he's like, I'm not patrolling anymore because I accidentally killed a child, an unarmed 13 year old. And John is like, you got to get out there again, man. You got to keep, just get back on the job. Don't let that stop you. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Take it from me, a man who let his job as a cop destroy his marriage. Yeah. The two of them have so much more chemistry than John and Holly do. Yeah. I really felt like maybe they ought to go get married. They seem to really love each other. I know. This is it's like really the tenderest relationship is between John and Al. And also I love that they're having this heart to heart on presumably a CB channel that the terrorists are also listening to. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Argyle, after sitting in the limo for like a couple of hours, not knowing what's going on, just calling every girl he knows, does work out that something is happening because Professor Jerry Hathaway starts doing a news broadcast about it. And we also get to see George Christie on the news talking about Helsinki syndrome. And then the FBI shows up, <laughs> Agents Johnson and Johnson, one of whom is played by People know him from different things. Many people know him as a conservative crank, but I know him as the guy from Showgirls who said, it must be weird 
not having anybody come on you. Best actor in America. That's our FBI guy. That's as good as acting gets is that showgirls role. I agree. Thank you. So they show up and as useless as the LAPD have been, they are more aggressively useless. They immediately go over the head triumphantly of assistant principal, assistant chief John Vernon and decide to kill the power to all of Nakatomi Tower, which is great for the terrorists because it means it'll automatically unlock the vault that Theo has been working on cracking this whole time. And now they have the bearer bonds and we hear Ode to Joy. (laughs) Essentially, the climax is that the terrorists have claimed that they are going to put the hostages on the roof. They're demanding a helicopter to transport them to freedom. It's also revealed that they're not really terrorists. They just want $640 million and are pretending to be terrorists for some reason. First time I've ever caught that. Me too. It doesn't really matter, but it's, I don't know, it's fun that they were doing that. And it's interesting too, because I feel like this is like the centerpiece of the dialogue about 80s movies and like vaguely Eastern European terrorists. Mm -hmm. And they're not. It's like another ambiguous diehard thing where is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? Are they terrorists? Are they not terrorists? Diehard really occupies a funny debate space in our culture. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's uh, without it, we would have no discourse at all. (laughs) (laughs) And Hans, like, apparently was with a West German terrorist group before, but got disavowed (laughs) by them, presumably because he was more interested in robbery. I don't know. Unclear. So they are getting what they want, fantastic, and their plan is to get all the hostages on the roof and blow it up so they can fake their own deaths and nobody will come looking for them. The FBI's double-cross plan is to bring around helicopters and then shoot all the terrorists on the roof, and we get the wonderful line, I figure we lose about 20, 25% of the hostages tops. I can live with that. Just cops copping. <laughs> For every horrible, unchecked belief this movie has, it then says something very sane. Like, for example, the FBI are useless cowboys who just escalate shit. And it's hard to know what to feel about that. Totally. I'm so excited to talk about its ideology because... Such as it is. It, yeah, it's so confusing with regard to all the... Again, the like the shooting your gun arc is something that's very well worth considering. But then just Ellis is a fantastic cartoon character of like 80s mm-hmm. Reaganism. So it's a really funny <laughs> mishmash of statements. <laughs> yeah. And they were apparently... When they started shooting this, they didn't quite know how it would end. Like, this is one of the movies that was being written, like, as it was being shot. It feels like it. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say I, I would not have thought that because it does feel like oh. fully cooked, fully made. But, you know, we have different experiences. I feel like every five minutes of the last 25 minutes could have been a setup for an ultimate ending. And then finally, they're like, it's like when you're like, you don't know if the plane is actually ready to go. And then they finally get there and I find it satisfying. But I did find it to be maybe 25 minutes longer than it had to be. This is a very long movie for the 80s. This is over two hours long, which like you didn't get that much with this kind of thing at the time. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, they all are like this. But yeah, so the climax is that the hostages are on the roof. They're about to be blown up by the terrorists. They're about to be shot by the FBI. The terrorists have also finally worked out because Hans Gruber just, if he sees a photo lying on a desk, (laughs) he does not bother to pick it up. 
that Holly is actually John's wife. So they're taking her hostage downstairs. John gets the hostages off of the roof and then the FBI is shooting at him. And this is the scene that won me over. Like when I started liking and caring about Die Hard, this is when this is when it happened for me because he has to tie a fire hose around his waist and leap out of the building and then smash through a window on a lower floor. And as he's doing it, he's like, how do you get yourself into these things, John? <laughs> he's just like talking to himself like, what the fuck? Why? How does, how does this happen? How does this keep happening to me? And I was like, John, I feel like that every day. We are the same. He acts very put upon in that moment. It's like the way I act when I realize I forgot to pick something up at the grocery store. That's, yes. that's him blowing himself up off of a building with a fire hose tied to him. Right, with like the demeanor of someone who left olive oil in their shopping cart. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I feel like this movie has a little bit in common with Clerks because his mood is like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but he successfully smashes in through a window with his ruined feet, has a standoff with Hans, saves Holly, chucks Hans off of a building by taking off the Rolex or whatever that Hans was holding onto on Holly's wrist that was like a bonus for being a great employee, which is really weird. And then <laughs> appears to kill Carl, who's our Shelley Long ex from the money pit, Alexander Gudinoff. And then they exit. Everything's great. Assistant principal Vernon is so mad. And then Carl comes out about to kill everyone and Al kills him. And it's so triumphant. He's like, hey, I'm killing people again. Hooray! <laughs> Yay, Christmas! Back in the saddle. The end. <laughs> it's the time for miracles, like Han said. I'm going to conclude by saying two things. The director's commentary for this movie is really fun. And one of the things John McTiernan says that to me explains why this movie hits the way it does is that one of the inspirations for it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's oh. a night where the princes turn into asses and the asses turn into princes <laughs> and the two lovers are reunited at the end. And I was like, yeah, mm. I see that. What a great basis for an action movie. And B, that the argument about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not is boring. We all decide our own Christmas movies. It's a personal thing. To me, it definitely is. And to me, the more interesting question is, why is it in its bones a Christmas movie? And to me, the answer is that it's a film about a man named John McClane, who's suffering, frees us all, and he gets his feet all fucked up. And he's reborn and covered in sweat and blood mm. and all the crap that was in that shaft for some reason and he is both the adult <laughs> jesus and the baby jesus the end thank you uh we settled your debate 2016 yeah, yeah. it's why debate taste you know it just it is what it is oh my god yeah the internet is slow to catch up so rex what's your relationship with Die Hard uh, before watching it for today and after so actually the first Die Hard movie that i saw was not Die Hard, it was, um, mm. oh, it was one of the ones with a stupid name. Live mm. Free or Die Hard, maybe? It came out in 08. Was Justin Long in that? He was. And and uh, the plot yeah. was that was this time John McClane's daughter is in peril. It's a cheap move. But I saw it in theaters and I was 16 years old. I knew nothing about die hard anything i just like felt like going to the movies with my friend that day and we both were like i don't know bruce willis sure neither of us had ever seen any diehards and we were captivated we truly felt 
that it was a good day to die hard. <laughs> and when I did see the original, I was actually kind of taken by how relatively subtle it is, like in mm. comparison to all the sequels and in comparison to what action movies wound up becoming. And I think even in comparison to action movies of the time that it was almost reacting against, like in the beginning, John McClane is, I think, very fallible and very mm -hmm. human and very not the muscle bound God archetype of action movies. And of course, by the time the Die Hard movies got to the one I originally saw, it was all like explosions and shooting down airplanes and whatnot. It, it kind of fell into the same trap as all the others. But it's like actually for an action movie about cops from the 80s, it's fairly subtle. And I appreciate that about it. It really is more more of a feelings movie than, say, a lethal weapon. Mm -hmm. I really love the fact that this script was apparently offered to both uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and they both turned it down. And then someone, God bless them, was like, well... Let's get that guy from Moonlighting. Yeah. It's a miracle, really. It is a Christmas miracle because this movie benefited <laughs> by being turned down by two of the biggest stars of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like completely antithetical to studio logic, which is like, if the stars won't be in it, we won't make it. It's pretty incredible that it ended up not only that it ended up happening, but creating a whole new archetype of movie. I think it's like hard to imagine the same logic applying to a similar script now like oh well the biggest star in the world won't take it we can't get vin diesel to star in this action movie or jason statham so let's just get a guy from a network tv show i don't know <laughs> yeah. call it a day yeah yeah the only thing i can think of that comes close to that is like chris pratt sort of becoming that but like that's Ugh. it's not the same at all it doesn't feel it feels 100 percent different and i feel like that was like maybe chris pratt like melting his body and pouring it into the mold of like boring action cheese head as opposed to like showing up right. as the parks and rec guy to do yeah. the action stuff i would have liked that <laughs> yeah i think chris pratt could have avoided i mean outside of his personal life generally but he could have avoided a <laughs> lot of disdain by just showing up as andy right yeah and then he would have gotten an equal amount of disdain because people don't know what they need but yeah <laughs> <laughs> sarah why why did you like what happened with you and die hard like i remember a couple months ago you were like mm -hmm. i love this now and i was curious about just like what what was your arc with this well it's two things it's john mcclain's fallibility as a character and how in this first movie like yeah he's a new york cop he's like different from the rest of us like it would be folly to imagine for most of us that we could behave the way that he does in this situation. Like I would be hostage number nine, who you never really see or hear from. I yeah. would be cowering in a corner, obviously. But that he's a person and also a person my age, which I think affected me. He was like <laughs> 32 or 33 when they were making this. And it's like, yeah, that's my, I'm that age. You know, you're like, sure. You're, you're like starting to get creaky. <laughs> you're like aware of like how you really can't keep jumping around in elevator shafts anymore the the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and how that's depicted and how he's also somebody who's forced to go through emotional growth as part of this movie and to express vulnerability and to you know at least talking to al be real about how it is his fault and he did fuck up and he wasn't the husband that holly needed or that 
he should have been. And he recognizes that. And when I was less into it, I just thought of it as a movie about the lengths to which a man will go to avoid couples counseling, how like men would rather defend a skyscraper from terrorists than go to therapy. (laughs) And I still think that's true. But that really the movie is arguing that like terrorists are the therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm. Also, just I have a real fondness for movies that do to the male body what they typically do to to women's bodies or to girls' bodies. And that's also why I love Saw, that Saw is all about torturing like adult businessmen or like Donnie Wahlberg or whatever. And this movie is about John McClane suffering and not to sound like... (laughs) A sadist, men's bodies in movies generally are just not really depicted as vulnerable very often at all. And I love that this is about him as just like a human being doing something that he knows is way above his pay grade and that the odds seem impossible. And and that this movie, I feel like, is also pitting him against authority figures who are almost unilaterally useless in a way that feels ahead of its time before we dive into that i'm curious about both of your takes knowing that the book that this is based on nothing lasts forever which came out in the late 70s originally had the mclean character although not named john mclean in the book as a much older cop and ultimately was saving his daughter and what do you make of the fact that they they changed that dynamic? Rex, it sounds like you saw a movie in which that ended up happening. <laughs> what is your take on them making these choices to actually make it be about his estranged wife? I mean, I actually like the sound of Die Hard, but the protagonist is much older, which I believe is that was part of the story, right? The protagonist was like 60 instead of Bruce Willis aged. Yes. And I think I read somewhere that when they were going to make that movie, they were considering Frank Sinatra as a protagonist. And I would pay any amount of money to see that movie, like even just with Frank Sinatra, like awkwardly plugged in. CGI wise to Bruce Willis's scenes, any amount of money. But uh, I, I stand by it. I think that putting the cop's daughter or child in danger is a hack move for, I guess, the usual reasons that it would be a hack move, but also because it's kind of a cheap way to get me emotionally invested in a cop protagonist who, in most of the movies where that happens, is kind of an emotional cipher. Like, he doesn't get real in most of those movies that I can remember the way that Bruce Willis does on the walkie talkie with Al talking about how he owes his wife an apology. It's like they they don't want to grant the audience any real interiority into this protagonist. So they do the cheap thing. They put the daughter in danger. Because interiority is for women. It's feminizing to have feelings. Yeah, it's for girls. So yeah, Sarah, what's your take? Oh, yeah, I guess that I agree. And it's become, I'm sure it was already a cliche at the time, but it is now like the biggest cliche in the world where like you have some action hero played by The Rock or whatever. And they're like, he's got to save his kids. He has kids. He cares about his kids. And it's like. (laughs) <laughs> you could like write a character for this guy or no okay it's fine he has kids so this is a response to 
Dirty Harry and like Death Wish, right? This is a response to like Charles Bronson characters and Clint Eastwood characters at this time because this is 88. Yeah, I would say they mentioned Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry in the commentary. And I would say that mostly because yeah. Charles Bronson is just like just a guy, a man who likes to walk around shooting random civilians in New York City with like very little method to his madness. The vague nuance is, is something bad has happened to his to his kid by way of Jeff Goldblum. Very jarring. And um, it's such an interesting nuance to make it not just like your wife, but your wife that you are no longer really in a relationship mm-hmm. with or you're in a tenuous relationship. I found that to be an extremely interesting choice. And also the 80s is when we start getting a lot of conversations about divorce generally. Mm, we just yeah. talked about that in the Santa Claus episode, which is ultimately a movie about talking to kids about parents getting divorced. It's never occurred to me to really comment on the fact that they're estranged at this time, because to me, it feels very familiar to see action movies where like really the best way to fix a marriage is to go or to start a relationship or to heal a relationship is to like go through some kind of horrible ordeal. (laughs) Right, which they say explicitly at the end of Speed. (laughs) Yes. Well, actually they say that it's like a bad sign if you get together while you're on a bus hijacked by Dennis Hopper, but they still carry on with it. Right, amen. (laughs) (laughs) And Speed also, as many people know, was directed by the director of photography on this movie, Jan de Bond, and was pitched as Die Hard on a Bus because everything for the next decade was Die Hard on a Die Hard in a die hard with a because the movie that no one believes in becomes the template for every movie that gets pitched for a decade after it succeeds because no one believed in the guy from moonlighting the other thing that i enjoy about this that i wish they went into a little bit more is the classic new yorker in california trope which we get Obviously, in Annie Mm -hmm. Hall, we get in a series of Mad Men episodes like Sex in the City, Sex in the City. Yes. Sex in another city. (laughs) The New Yorker in California experiencing California is always funny to me, no matter what. Like, it's just like a crusty turd of a guy who goes to a place where people smile because it's sunny (laughs) and where guys kiss you, where guys kiss you on your face unsolicited. I love that trope. I wish we got like a touch more of it, but I'm fine with the little bit that we got i just like a nod of how ridiculous of a process that is in your fan fiction like what more of that would you like to see like like, like john (laughs) smells the little soap in holly's bathroom and is like verbena what the heck is verbena i think you've nailed it that's wonderful sushi he should say something about sushi that was a big thing at the time yeah yeah yes you're right we love to hate on sushi in the 80s at the japanese christmas party where he didn't know that people in japan uh honored christmas celebrated christmas oh my god yeah yeah. there could have been a sushi moment you're right people were really working through sushi in 80s popular culture and by working through, I mean being racist about it. I remember yeah. Breakfast Club. Yes. <laughs> Except Molly Ringwald. She got the memo immediately. Right, yeah. Not that it matters, but I kind of love it. Like, what is this movie's position? Like, what are its politics outside of all of the above? Oh, my God. Every plot in A plot, B plot, every character, whatever, I feel like contradicts another thing that the movie is saying which is a fascinating choice maybe what is that every time they bring in a new set of cops i feel like i'm like starting the ride all over again i gotta (laughs) learn like this whole new batch of reasons that these particular cops are stupid and incompetent 
And so I feel like the overarching cop theme here is that you need like a hard-nosed, get-her-done New York City like street cop in order to take down a team of terrorists slash robbers. Like the FBI can't do it. LAPD can't do it, probably due to their fruity California ways. It's got to be John McClane from New York. He's the only one who's up to the task. He's a cowboy. You need a cowboy. Yeah. It's not cops bad, necessarily. It's like, New York cops, good question mark? John McClane, good question mark? I mean, I also find it, like, this is a movie where, as we were talking about, like, every gift it gives you, it, like, takes away something else. And you're like, what the heck? And... I think that this is also like the ultimate good guy with a gun fantasy. And this is a fantasy that men who want to wear sidearms to Walmart have about themselves. Right. That's not good. But I love it, too, in my own way. So I don't know. Totally. I think you're right. But I always think of I only saw Death Wish for like a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, this is the movie that made the call. Like, this is the movie that was like, mm-hmm. someone's going to rape your partner. You care about that, not because of you care about their interior or their life, but because it's your property. Take a gun around, protect your property. And this movie creates like a whole other aspirational layer on that which is it like kind of feels bad about guns because this guy killed a 13 year old while on duty and then grows a level of like mature like he was like smart Mm -hmm. enough to feel bad about that he was human enough to feel bad about that and then his growth is he learns to use the gun again, <laughs> which is like like a master's class to Death Wish's, you know, GED, I guess. It does yeah. this like weird emotional laundering where like I think the thing that's fun about Die Hard is it is really, you know, you said dinner with Andre. It's so funny. It really is like this thoughtful series of conversations between these men upon which an action movie is based, but through that laundering of the intellect and intelligence, it still is like, shoot bad guys. (laughs) They don't want to take it so far that the guys having this like masculine emotional connection with each other aren't shooting bad guys because then it's it's gay which is a problem it's got to be straight there have to be bad guys they have to die and that's how you buy yourself the right to human emotions yeah and you can only be emotionally vulnerable when you're picking glass out of your feet then you've earned it (laughs) you can feel emotion when it's literally tearing your flesh asunder like that's when you can discuss it with a pal and also his new pal's a stranger which is perfect because he can't get close to anybody (laughs) it also answers the question how do you make new friends as an adult and it's like oh you know you like end up saving a building from terrorists and you bond with the only cop who can be helpful to you this movie i mean speaking of how i got into this the route to this for me was through cliffhanger because last summer it was not clear at the time but my dad was dying and I responded to that by watching one million over-the-top action movies. And one of them that I really loved and bonded with was Cliffhanger, which is is a Stallone movie, but it's, it's Die Hard on a Mountain. I'm sure it was pitched that way. And then <laughs> after I watched that, I was like, that was amazing. What else has Rennie Harlan done? And then I watched Die Hard 2 which I also love, but which like ups the stakes to an absurd degree, like an entire plane of people crashes and dies like a big plane. Um, and once again, no one believes in John McClane 
And then that sent me back to this. But to me, it's like action movies are inevitably connected to dads and dad logic and what dads believe about themselves. And one of the things that my dad actually said quite a lot when I was growing up was, Sarah, I would walk over broken glass for you. And I was just like, what good is that? Like, I need you to just be nice to me when you pick me up from school. Like, when is that scenario going to come up? It won't. I need you to, like, put in, like, the small, unglamorous work every day of, like, being nice to me. And this movie answered that question. This is when it comes up. To me, there's also something really distilled here about, I think we teach men in American culture to ignore the kind of, like, drab, everyday, like, housekeeping work of maintaining a relationship and saying I'm sorry to Holly and are like you can make it all up for it by just like really going all out at Christmas <laughs> yeah I think that uh in that same vein like the fantasy of the good guy with a gun isn't just that that guy exists like it's very much a fantasy of being the good guy with a gun and right. it's like a way that that people who buy into that sort of thing believe themselves to to be good and to have good judgment and to know when to shoot someone and, you know, when shooting somebody would be a net good. Yeah. And I mean, my dad was very much the same way. It was very much bought into that fantasy of like, someday I could be the good guy who knows when to save everybody. And it just makes it really easy to not buy into the, as you describe it, Sarah, the, the everyday work of like waking up on time and doing some chores so that someone else doesn't have to. Like, that's boring. Right. There's no such thing as the good guy running the dishwasher. That's, <laughs> that's just what you're supposed to do. But if it's a really big gesture, and I think it works this way with romantic gestures, too, like oh, the, yeah. the really big over the top proposals and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like that's just kind of a way to get out of having to be a little bit that romantic every day. You know, yeah. you can do it all at once and get it out of your system and then it's out and then you're free. Yeah, it's like a Costco run. You're just done. You finished early. Right. And surely it's every woman's dream to have a boyfriend who never washes a dish, but who proposes to her at a fucking hockey game. And like that's the, the thing that's keeping therapists in business is not people who are like, my partner didn't show up for me and save me from terrorists. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only very occasionally does that come up. I just needed someone to show up, period. And they did not do it. They could not do it. They got weird when I asked them to do it. They got hostile when I asked them to do it. It also occurs to me that this is a Christmas movie because it falls into the Christmas Carol model, which I think is, you know, we've really adopted as one of our story templates for Christmas. And Victorians knew this, like Victorians loved a good Christmas ghost story. Like Christmas is a horrific time full of horror <laughs> and horribleness. And just the idea of like Christmas being a time where you are taken for a ride and shown who you are and have to confront yourself. It's about men being forced to change their ways. And in that way, Die Hard and A Christmas Carol are very similar. It's like, what does it take to teach a grown man a lesson? And the answer is quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, and Christmas is also so weird because it's like, remember that guy that got crucified? Here he is as a baby. Yeah. As we talked about before, that is one of my favorite things about Christmas is the emphasis on the baby Jesus. I am so all about the baby Jesus. As a Jew, I've always found it a little creepy. Like you go see someone's Christmas decorations and there's just a 
Mm-hmm. It's just a baby. Like, what? <laughs> don't decorate your house with a baby. Let's put the baby in the snow. <laughs> right. To take him inside, probably. <laughs> in every town, like in every small town, this happened in the small town I grew up in in Maine. And this, I feel like, happens regularly. Is every town has a nativity scene where the baby Jesus gets stolen? It's like part <laughs> of the. It's part of a thing. They got to start bolting down those Jesuses. <laughs> Apparently. Don't take him. The guy I bought weed from as a kid, he had the baby Jesus. That's where it landed. It always landed in some, some pothead's house. <laughs> Did he keep his weed in the baby <laughs> Jesus? He didn't. He just had it on display, but that would have been better. I think what I love about the baby Jesus is the fact that like... He's just got to behave like a normal baby. Like, I don't care how godly he is. Babies are babies. So, like, the baby yeah. Jesus at some point, like, you know, wasn't getting enough milk flow and just, like, gummed the shit out of Mary. And she was like, hey! <laughs> just thinking about along the lines of you, Sarah, saying that for the next decade, everything was die hard on a, mm-hmm. die hard in a. Watching it this go, I realize how much this influenced Terminator 2. Because, like, Terminator was just like... Yeah, same about that so much of my memories of like the spectacle in terminator 2 like happen shooting at cops from the top of a building like a big glassy Mm. building glass being shot out of it so much engagement with the police in one way Mm. or another Mm. the police are bad in terminator 2 as represented by both the police and the shape t1000 yeah the shape the villain takes so along the lines of like the commentary from roger ebert where it's unbelievable because because the authority figures are bad, it feels a little ahead of its time and what it's willing to say. It's like, Roger, you live in Chicago. Do you read the newspaper aside from the part that you write at all? And he was like a socialist. Like, I'm a little taken aback. But he was also white. I guess my charitable assumption is that he had so many movies to see that he read. But also his wife was black, although maybe not in the late 80s. I, it's just like, Roger... Look around. Plenty of people have adjacency to people of color and still have really dumb opinions. No, really? What about de Blasio? Not Bill de Blasio. What about de Blasio? The unofficial motto of you are good. (laughs) What about Bob Blasio? I do appreciate its willingness to be like, you know, on one hand, again, it's one of the conflicting messages that are happening. On one hand, there's a love affair between these two very tender cops, and that's lovely to see come together. And on the other hand, none of these other cops can do anything. They're very bad at their jobs. And also it's like the cops are stupid because they don't understand what an asset in John McClane. The shooting civilians thing, the shooting unarmed children thing. That is fine. It is their lack of appreciation of John McClane that is marking them as incompetent. Can we talk about Alan Rickman for a couple of minutes? Yes. Rickman, primo Rickman in this movie. This is like as good as it gets. Yeah. This obviously for both Bruce Willis and the gentleman who plays uh, Carl Winslow and the police officer. Reginald Vell Johnson. Yes, Reginald Vell Johnson. Thank you. This is both of their star turns. Is this... Rickman's star turn? This is, if not his first movie, his first American movie. This is it for us beating Rickman. It's unreal. Oh, yeah. I root for him a lot. Like, I can't help it. I really like Bruce Willis, but he just doesn't have the charm and grace of a Rickman. That's what they always say about Bruce Willis. (laughs) 
That's yeah. <laughs> I love Rickman in this too, but I'm I'm like fully fully with John McClane. I'm over identifying with him, just like American men apparently do. Like, tell me about what what do you love about our guy Hans Gruber? Yeah, I have a little notebook actually. It just says Mrs. Hans Gruber on every page. Rex Gruber does have a ring to it. Oh, it does. It does. That's, yeah, I think I have to break up with my fiance now and find myself a Gruber. Yeah. Rickman in this movie, I just I'm always drawn to like the witty, slick, potentially queer washed character in like any movie. I love a good villain. And I just find him to be really warm and funny and uh, a master of disguise. Like, check out that American accent. It's almost plausible. (laughs) Bill Clay. Right. Bill Clay. Like, he's just grinding his teeth through. It's a very tooth-forward accent that he has. You know what it is? It's the moment when... uh, He's like listing to the cops all the various terrorists that he wants freed in order to meet his demands. And then he names some group of terrorists and one of his henchmen looks at him like, who are you talking about? And he mutes the phone and he says, I read about them in Time magazine. I just fell in love with him then and there. I read the article in Forbes. Yeah. (laughs) I also feel like everyone in Hollywood, I think, believes they know how to write a good bad guy or sort of create a good bad guy. And most of them are wrong. Most of the time when somebody is like, I'm going to make such a great arch bad guy, it just falls flat. But like it really works here. And I wonder... why we think that is first of all his mission is not unsympathetic he's stealing money from a corporation great yeah fucking awesome like he's not trying to be cruel from the get-go the way his plan was supposed Mm -hmm. to work was they were going to go in there steal a ship 650 million dollars from a corporation and walk out Mm -hmm. there's nothing unsympathetic about his desire yeah he's not particularly interested in killing hostages either it's not a the motive is not sadism like they're not against killing people but it's not the primary goal no and he will as we see he will do it and he does it to at least a character who as a person seems sympathetic although he is the representative of the corporation and then a person who is absolutely not sympathetic you're kind of itching for him to die a little bit. So it's it's satisfying when Gruber does it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's handy. What he's there to do is, at least from my view, and maybe not explicitly for the average audience for this movie, but like we all want to steal money from a corporation. It's a very sympathetic, <laughs> it's a very sympathetic mm-hmm. desire. I mean, talk about good guy with a gun. I feel like we all think that under the right circumstances, we could pull a Gruber type heist <laughs> without having to kill anybody. I certainly believe that. I, I think about it all the time. He just hired too many male models. He needed to just, too many hooks. <laughs> yeah. Don't hire brothers also. That's just irresponsible. What if they both die? What? What? How will their mom do after that? One brother at a time. To your point, Rex, I loved that aside about having read it in Forbes. Like there is a dimensionality to this character that is illustrated in like those like various asides. He seems at the very least like a person that would be entertaining to be in a room with, no matter the circumstances. Ideally, he doesn't have a gun to your head. If anything, John McClane's presence just exponentially upped the body count of this whole situation. Because I kind of feel like, you know, left to his own devices, 
no, Gruber doesn't want to murder a bunch of people. He probably <laughs> wants to crack his dry little jokes and, you know, make things relatively pleasant for the hostages. He's very civilized. And uh, then there's John McClane, and he's the one blowing up elevator shafts and whatnot. He, he forces Gruber's hand. He's the villain of Die Hard, if anything. I'm team Gruber. He's the gun in any situation, which is like, it takes a tense situation and makes it more likely that there's going to be someone who gets killed. I think we've got a little too far, but I see what you're saying. (laughs) But the body count of this movie is actually very low. Like, we don't lose any random civilian hostages at all. We lose two people who aren't male model henchmen. Did nobody die when he blew up the elevator shaft? Yeah, I guess nobody did. Henchmen died. We had a lot of male models to burn through. There is an argument to be made that like McLean is the reason Ellis dies. McLean's not in this situation. Ellis doesn't die. Ellis is the reason Ellis dies, to be fair. <laughs> no, totally. Ellis totally, completely totally. ellis himself. Yeah. Yeah, cocaine. Well, you just know that Ellis was just like doing a bunch of coke while sitting there on that Frank Lloyd Wright fountain. It's <laughs> like, I think I think I got a good yeah. idea. I think I can turn this around. I've also had that thought on cocaine and it's never correct. Not one time. <laughs> I mean, I think that that is an interesting point that like McLean like doesn't necessarily make the situation better. He's just more likable because he's on our side as Americans who are cheering on this situation. So is your argument that if McLean like wasn't a factor, if he misses his flight, then basically the terrorists or robbers or whatever come in, they do kill Takagi because that was unrelated. And right. then they just like sort it out, get the money and leave. And we don't have to blow up a building or anything. Yeah, they probably do still have to kill Takagi. But in this scenario, the cops are never called. Mm -hmm. So they never show up. And they are the ones, right, who inadvertently open the vault for the so-called terrorists. The FBI does, yeah. Right, the FBI does. The fake terrorists never have to pivot to deciding to blow up the top of the building. Like, I feel like he just panics and, like, makes it all up on the fly. Well, they do, though, because they have to fake their own death. Because the terrorists actually left to their own devices would have killed all of the hostages to make it look like they had also died so that nobody comes looking for them. And I don't mean to pivot out of this, but that itself is a bad plan because they will not find your bodies. Right. They're going to know immediately that the 12 German guys who were responsible for this situation are not in the building. There's only so many bodies here. (laughs) Or pieces. I don't know. Don't you picture Robert Davey just like looking at like a huge heap of bone fragments and being like, yeah, I think there's like 45 people here. I think we put in a day. We cheer on this cowboy. I don't know how better or worse the situation is with him in it or out of it. I think it's better because I think all the plan was to kill all the hostages. Was it? I missed that completely. The idea is like we blow up the building, we kill everyone, and then they never find us. And then we go to the Cayman Islands or something. My understanding is that became the plan after everything got fucked up because John McClane was there. But they still have to fake their own deaths. So like, how are they going to do that without blowing up a bunch of shit? Did they say going in, we're going to fake our deaths? Or did they just believe that they were going to steal it and get the fuck out of there? That's what I assumed. No, because because Gruber says if you steal $600, it doesn't matter. And if you steal $600 million, they're going to come find you unless they think you're already dead. So it's... Mm. connected to the amount of money they are getting. Okay, so your hero is right, Sarah. Well, you know, 
his choices aren't unimpeachable, but I think that like the plan all along was just to like kill everyone and fuck off. Mm. That's so weird to me because it seems like some of those guys wouldn't signed up for that, specifically the hacker. But who am I to assume anyone's intentions? We don't really know that much about Theo's personal life. I mean, yeah, he does look 100 percent less sinister than every other guy. And also the terrorists or robbers were cast to look like male models, which I think was very smart because it does like attractive people just seem more evil. So they feel like they were the opposite gender end of a Robert Palmer video. (laughs) (laughs) What's your sales pitch for this movie? If you're trying to get someone to watch Die Hard that has never seen it. My other kind of caveat for this movie, like, again, one of the things that just feels weird about it and feels unpleasant especially as time has passed is that like i think in the 80s it was plausible as an american civilian to imagine that you wouldn't by chance find yourself in a situation where there's a ton of like machine gun fire happening all around you for minutes at a time and that doesn't feel true anymore i shop at walmart sometimes this is where these things happen you don't Mm -hmm. even have to be in a big fancy building with hundreds of millions of dollars in it yeah terrorist takeovers used to be fancy our terrorists are garbage we just have some guy named jeff who got fired from his job at circuit city and had easy access to a much bigger and more efficient gun than any human being needs really like part of the Mm -hmm. fantasy of this movie is that if you're taken hostage it'll be by a guy who's like really cool and who reads two of them (laughs) yeah my pitch for this is just like watch it if you want to watch a man suffer that's my cell rex yeah i'm sticking by it come for bruce willis stay for the rickman of your lives We usually wrap the show, Rax, by asking a question that's left over from when we were a show called Why Are Dads? You're just welcome to interpret this however you want. And the question is, we know John McClane is a father. We know that Al's about to become a father. Who, in your view, is the daddy of this movie? Oh, boy. <clears throat> the daddy of this movie. I don't think it's McClane. His fatherishness is a little bit of an afterthought in this installment. I guess it's got to be Al. Mm, mm. What if I just came out from like a hard left turn with Argyle? Argyle's <laughs> the daddy of Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Argyle is the daddy. Argyle knows how to wait for his moment and not get overly involved in something <laughs> right. before that time comes. Argyle's like the dad who kind of isn't around most of the time, but then he gives you a big bouquet of flowers <laughs> at your dance recital. Like that's... That's Argyle's father aspect. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I'm going to make the case for Holly in the time where she's like, we got some hostages who actually have some needs here. Can we have those needs met? And I'm I'm in charge because you killed my boss, Mm -hmm. which is like Mm. a fun uh, turn that we got from Holly. And they don't make. I mean, I feel like it could have been a really easy thing to make Holly absolutely useless and a damsel in distress, and they did not do that. And it makes sense to her character, who's like a very, you know, competent uh, uh, person at her job, who's climbing the ladder and doing a great job of it and earning Rolexes. So I like what they did with Holly. Sarah Marshall, Mm -hmm. who's the daddy of Die Hard? I mean, I'm also going to agree with Holly. Also, in the time since Die Hard, we've had this very annoying move to where to avoid being damsels in distress, people who make action movies are like, Mm. I got you. She'll just be like incredibly good at action shit for no reason out of nowhere. 
And it's like, no, that's not like... She can run in heels. Right. <laughs> and similar also to Sandra Bullock and Speed, who does get to do a lot more, but whose skill area is driving a bus really fast and having a tough time with it, but getting through it. Where again, it's like, this is a degree of competence that like a normal human woman who's good at stuff, but isn't in action movies as her bread and butter, like is believably able to do and i love that holly is like she's not a damsel in distress she's not like inexplicably great at action shit for no reason she's just like doing what she can within her zone of influence (laughs) and then i'm gonna say paul gleason who plays assistant principal vernon assistant police chief what's his face because he gets more and more funny throughout the movie and like to me there are a couple of like big laugh lines near the end that are totally his and that totally break up this fairly heavy action we're getting. Specifically the part where Hans Gruber falls off the tower and splats to death and assistant principal Vernon just goes, I hope that's not a hostage. He's very much like the dad on the verge of a meltdown at Disneyland. That's his yeah. vibe. <laughs> That's 100%. Rax, how would you like people to find you? What would you like people to buy and engage? Oh, yeah. I guess for the time being, you can still find me on Twitter at Rax King is Dead. You can listen to my podcast, Low Culture Boil, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. That's between you and your God. (laughs) I would love it if you'd sign up for my newsletter at patreon.com slash raxkingisdead. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. And I publish every week, usually multiple times. And I just kind of talk about whatever. And I'm going to be spending more time there than on Twitter as Elon Musk does his fell sorcery on the place that I made my career at. So yeah, that's where y'all can find me. Yeah, he's sorcerying it up real hard, real fast. Mm. Big time, yeah. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much to Ethan Satiwan for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you so much to Fresh Lash for providing the beats that make the transitions on the show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks, of course, to Rax King for being here and talking about Die Hard. Thanks for following us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for finding us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions and supporting us there. And you get the bonus episodes. It is great. Next week, we will talk about Gremlins with Jill Krajewski. It was so much fun. That's all you need to know for now. Thanks for joining us on this journey to uh, a Los Angeles corporate Christmas party. We really appreciate you being here. You, my friend, are good. Thanks for everything.